just weeks away from the 2020 election, but it's going to feel like months, if not an entire year. If you want to know what the hell happened this week, sit back, grab a beverage, listen to myself. I'm Tyler Axis, Jason Matthews, and try to recap what happened. Jason, where do we even begin? Last week, we, we, we found out uh, that the president's positive for COVID-19. Uh, he was in the hospital following our, uh, our chat at Friday mornings when we record this. It's now Friday morning, and they're saying, eh, you know what? He might be able to get back on the trail. In fact, maybe he'll go down to Florida and hold a rally. What's your thoughts of what happened this week? Well, we, we uh, just want everybody to know that we're in talks right now with Regeneron for sponsorship of, of this podcast. Um, what, I mean, what a week. I, I mean, you, we've seen a lot of chaotic weeks in American politics. Uh, this one, this one takes the cake. This, this one, this one was, um, to put it mildly, um, chaotic to say, to say the least. I mean, as you said, where do we begin? Well, we begin with where we were a week ago at this time with the news that was just about 12 hours old when we recorded last week's show that the president and the first lady were COVID positive. Uh, and then of course, Friday, as the entire day went on, we were getting reports about the president's condition, and then he um, goes to Walter Reed on on Friday evening, and and by Saturday afternoon, um, this thing went from you know doctors coming out and giving the reports in the president's condition to becoming veering off into this you know, this, this almost this comedy sketch, not to make light of, of his illness, but it was, it was, you know, by Sunday morning, it was, you know, dear leader got up and wrestled two lions this morning. He feels virile. He's, he's alive. You know, it, it, it's just, it was just absolutely bizarre. And then, it, you know, the capstone of course is on Sunday where the president comes out for his joyride, um, highly contagious in a hermetically sealed um, SUV to greet his supporters. And of course the dramatic entrance back to the white house on Monday, when all medical experts and doctors are saying, you know, he's still contagious. He should still be in the hospital. Oh, it's well, because there's so much to unpack uh, with with that, that window of the weekend of Mm -hmm. the the doctors coming out saying, you know what? He, he looked at us and smiled today. He's in good spirits. And then to have everybody try to decipher the timeline that the doctor, Conley, I believe is his name, said, yeah. well, you know, we're 72 hours into this. And people are like, holy shit, wait a minute. We found when out about this in less than 48 hours ago. Yeah. So if we're talking 72, let's go back, look at the schedule. Who is he with? Where'd he go? The White House has been pretty reluctant in contact tracing. Uh, you have the vice president, which we'll get to that debate, who's the chair or the head of the task force uh, on COVID-19. And this thing just was a debacle. And then... Mm-hmm. So because of the, the questioning of doctors, they come back out and say, well, look, we didn't want to, uh, you know, basically worsen the illness by coming out and telling you the, the reality of whether or not the president was on oxygen or not, as though the virus was listening to the press conference and taking its notes on how to behave on what the doctors are saying. <laughs> it's just all these, and I want to get to the, the question that I've been Burning desk, and it's uh, it's been difficult to ask this in a way that doesn't seem offensive because I know the staff at Walter Reed are servicemen and women. But did this weekend really damage the integrity of the institution that is Walter Reed? No, what it did is it, it shredded the integrity and the reputation of the president's physician, 
And this is the second physician the president has had. The first one was Ronnie Jackson, who he nominated back in 2018 to be the head of the uh, Veterans Administration or the uh, Veterans Affairs Department. Um, and, and there is a principle that's advocated by Republican strategist and never Trumper Rick Wilson, who's part of the Lincoln Project, which, by the way, the Lincoln Project got out some of its best work this week uh, with its commercials and its videos about all of the chaos that this week has brought. Um, and Rick Wilson said early on and back in 2017, he said, there's a principle here. Everything Trump touches dies. And people laughed at that when he said that. And he, then he went in and he, he even wrote a book about it. And he talked about, you know, you take a look at Trump's business dealings and, and every relationship that he's had. And, and when you look at it and you take this, this Wilson principle, everything Trump touches dies, and you look at, uh, not being flippant here, you look at the people that are around Trump, the experts that are around Trump. It, it, he has this ability, whatever it is, and historians are going to be trying to decipher this and figure this out for decades. What is it about Trump that people who were highly respected experts in their field, um, for whatever reason, seem to sacrifice uh, standards, integrity, what have you, and, and all in, in service to please the president? I mean, the, the, the topic or the comment that Dr. Conley gave that, you know, what you just said, well, we don't want to, you know, in any way influence the course of the virus. Is what, what the hell are you talking about here? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you're, you, you, you're a doctor. I mean, what, and, and the fact that, that, you know, they, they give the acquiescence so that he can go out on this joyride, which I think was the worst. I mean, I thought it was going to be impossible to top the photo op that was outside the church, outside St. John's Episcopal Church when they had cleared out all the protesters. I mean, this one, this one, you know, took the prize right there. And it, and it, it's just bizarre. That's the only way you can say it. it's just bizarre. And then, we, you know, we still don't know why the president went to Walter Reed several months ago. And NBC News broke the story last night. You know, he made an, unex, an unexpected, um, unplanned trip to Walter Reed. And when they got there, they insisted that all the medical professionals sign a non-disclosure agreement, which they never have to sign for any other president. I mean, the president's treating the presidency, two things. He's treating it as though it's his business. And the second thing is he's treating it as a reality show. And NBC News reported that there were two doctors that refused to sign an NDA and they were not allowed to treat the president. Just still to this day, don't know why he went to Walter yeah. Reed. And, you know, for people that are, well, HIPAA, you guys have HIPAA laws. Well, you know what? He's the president of the United States. He is yeah. leading the nation. There, there's a... Uh, a vast difference than little Johnny on the street, uh, you know, not having to, yeah. you know, talk about an illness uh, that he may or may not have versus the president that we need a clear, concise uh, direction that is going. And well, we know, don't, we all, I don't, we also need to take into account here the types of drugs that the president's on because he is on, um, he was on a, um, an experimental drug cocktail to, to combat the virus. Uh, but then also he's on some pretty powerful steroids. And, and anybody that you know who's been on steroids will tell you that there are side effects um, in taking the steroids. And the dosage, we don't really know the dosage that the president's on. We don't have all of the information. And we do know that at least one of the steroids that, that they said the president was on um, increases aggression. 
and and can can impair uh, has some uh, impairments when it comes to um, mental ability. I mean, I mean, this is serious. I mean, this is you know, so much of the Trump administration these Trump years veers into comedy for a lot of people. When we're talking about the health of the president of the United States, there's nothing to laugh about, and the American people are entitled to know what's going on. Well, and to to back up some of your the side effect. Uh you know, discussion. I mean, the aggression, yeah. it's tough to tell. I mean, the, the president, Donald Trump as a human being has been aggressive uh, in the way he approaches, uh, whether it's a debate stage, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, whether it's just in a boardroom meeting or certainly mm-hmm. on Twitter. But one thing that was certainly noticeable, and I'm not sure if it was desperation as seeing what the polls are, where they are, that the things that he thought would bounce back as far as his debate performance uh, you know, going off for a joyride, uh, you know, with the Secret Service members, thinking that this was a good optics. Things are not looking good uh, politically. And the tweets that came out after he's left uh, Walter Reed and is back in the White House yeah. are some of the most unhinged tweets he has had in, during his presidency. And that says a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, Nancy Pelosi, you know, he called off the talks on, on a COVID relief package. And Nancy Pelosi made the comment, uh, where she said, well, she said, um, um, it's hard to tell if it's the steroids talking with him because you never know. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, this is, this is, um, like I said, it, it's, you just, you just shake your head at all of this. And the question, the question to me is, as somebody who watches this, is, uh, are we past the breaking point with the electorate? And the poll numbers right now are very stable. I mean, the, the latest Pew poll, Pew National Poll came up today, and it has Biden at 52% and Trump at 42%. And we have 20, 24 days, we're 24 days out until election day. Just to, so, so Trump needs to change the narrative, and he needs to change the narrative dramatically in these closing days. Because we, at the end of the day today, it's very likely we will have Friday, October 9th, it's very likely we will already have had 4 million people vote mm-hmm. in this election. Uh, and in the early vote numbers, when you're digging into those numbers on a state by state basis are showing that there's a high number of people who didn't even bother to vote in 2016, who are coming out to vote in these, in these early elections so far, early voting so far, many of them Democrats and independents. Well, that that's not good news for the president. He needs to change, change the trajectory of this race and he needs to change the narrative fast. And he, he's lost time. He's lost an entire week now um, to to um, to coronavirus, and it's only highlighted the problems that this administration has had and the failure this administration has had in dealing with the crisis. At the same time, that cases are skyrocketing across the United States. Yeah, we're in North Dakota as we uh, uh, record this, and there's no well, I, I I shouldn't say there's no place that is doing a worse job, at least per capita basis, than North Dakota. Aside from South Dakota, I think just yesterday did eclipse mm-hmm. uh, our, our 14-day rolling average. But the uh, it, it's it, you mentioned that numbers are coming out, and, and I can't imagine, like you were saying, that it's not a good uh, situation for the president when you have people that didn't vote in 2016. The people that did vote in 2016 came out for Donald Trump. Uh, and I can't imagine there's very many, I'm not saying there's zero, but I can't imagine there's some secret group that's out there that did not vote in 16 for Donald Trump, uh, that are now going to, after these four years, come out and say, geez, I wish I would have voted for him four Mm -hmm. years ago. So, I I mean, the, the, the hill to climb is getting 
more in, inclined for the president to turn anything around. And that, that's why, you know, you've got few things in your toolbox as a candidate to do. One of them's debates. And we saw what happened in the first debate, uh, now a week removed. And by all accounts, after that, it, it was the demeanor of which he handled himself on that stage that turned a lot of people away. Well, now he's a COVID-19 positive patient. We have guidelines of which you're not really supposed to be around people. He's clearly broken those in certain circumstances when it comes to uh, photographers, when it comes to the secret service. Uh, I mean, we don't know what we don't know of who he's been around, but with that in mind, you've got a 77 year old individual on the other side of a potential debate stage. By all accounts, both these people are in that uh, compromised uh, demographic when it comes to this virus. Nobody would ever push to have these two people, uh, well, I guess consciously, uh, to be on the same debate stage. So the commission comes out and says, well, let's do this virtually. And now the Don- uh, Donald Trump's uh, ducking and dodging debates. How? I mean, he is the individual that needs a debate more than anybody else in this race right now. How does this play out, Jason? The let's go back to the first debate here, because if you look at the timeline of the president, and, and this is the major question here, and you know somebody's digging into this, you know that the, the the press is is looking into this timeline here. The question is, when was the president infected uh, with the coronavirus? And there is no way that he went into that debate on September 29th uh, last week, where he was not contagious. Uh, the president, and the question now is, did the president know he was contagious then? And there, there's anecdotal evidence that's out there that's showing that perhaps the president did indeed suspect that he was ill going to the debate um, because he arrived late and he refused to have the test done. And that was part of the agreement with the presidential commission or the debate uh, commission on presidential debates is that everybody would be tested. Um, and, and so he went there on Tuesday night and then on Wednesday, uh, he went to Minnesota to campaign and, and was by that time, um, and then he also had on Thursday, he had the event, the fundraiser at his Bedminster, New Jersey golf course. It, there's no way that he didn't go into that debate infected. I mean, or, you know, infectious. I mean, that, that, that medical experts say that just, it, it, it's clear that he was. Uh, the president, the president uh, story came out this morning that, they're, that White House and campaign aides are trying to convince the president that it's better for him to go into a debate with Joe Biden where they're going to have 60 to 65 million viewers versus holding a rally on Fox, that's going to be covered on Fox News that's only going to get him 4 million viewers. But, but Fox News is where this president goes. That's his, that's his comfort zone. Um, the Biden campaign, I think, was very smart in that when the news came out that the president had refused to participate in a virtual debate, um, which, which the Trump campaign said we had never had a virtual debate before. Actually, we did. In 1960, there were four presidential debates between JFK and Richard Nixon, and the third presidential debate was with JFK in New York and Nixon in Los Angeles, and they held a 90-minute debate between the two candidates on opposite coasts of the country. This can easily be done. If they did in 1960, you can certainly do it in 2020. Um, The Biden campaign, they found out that that Trump said, nope, I'm not going to debate held a virtual debate on, on October 15th, which was supposed to be the town hall debate. So what does the Biden campaign do? They work out an agreement with, with ABC News, and ABC News is going to have Biden on primetime next, uh, next Thursday, the 15th, uh, where they're going to have him in a town hall debate moderated by George Stephanopoulos. 
So, so Trump's not going to be in the debate. There's not going to be a debate next week. So then the question is, when is going to be the next debate? Is the third planned debate going to go on? And it, it, it appears that the Trump strategy right now is to try to push at least one more debate as close as possible to election day in order to try to change the dynamic. Uh, but if, but if, you're, if you're Joe Biden right now, um, there's no incentive for you to debate this guy anymore. Are you uh, implying that Fox News, coupled with the Rush Limbaugh rally for the yeah. president, is going to get the, which by all accounts are both virtual. You know, it's, yeah, they're virtual. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that, well, I, I think it's pretty telling that in the last part when, when Donald Trump said, I'm not doing those, it's a waste of time. And he goes, well, they can cut you off whenever they want. That to me was the tell of why he does not yeah. want virtual debate because yeah. it goes back to the towering figure that he is on that debate stage to where you know what he sucks the oxygen out of the room clearly they aren't playing by any rules he didn't get tested before the debate the family didn't wear a mask i mean uh, mike pence's wife also joins him on stage after the, the debate that i want to transition to here not wearing it, it, the rules this administration don't think apply to them during a pandemic I, which are established by you know the some of the same people I want to just say something that, that is unpopular in many circles, but I think we have to really seriously look at the fact that the president may not be good at politics. <laughs> and, and I know Democrats are in shell shock yet and have PTSD from 2016. And yes, we don't know what fresh hell is yet to be unleashed in this month yet before going into the election. But the president may not be that very smart when it comes to politics. For example, you're down in the polls. Everybody is telling you their own internal polls are showing that you're, you're hemorrhaging among women. I mean, in some polls, there's a 41% gender gap. That's unprecedented between, uh, between Biden and Trump when it comes to female voters. So what do you do? You go out there in a debate with 70 million viewers and you're aggressive and you come off as a bully, as, a bully, as an ass. And, and what she did was you completely, as we said last week, you stepped over your opponent who did not give a strong debate performance at the beginning of that debate, Joe Biden. There were several parts in that debate where Joe Biden um, fell short of what he needed to do. And there was an opportunity there for if you just would have stopped interrupting him to let the story coming out of that debate being that Biden failed to meet the moment. Mm -hmm. And then of course you come out and, and um, everything in the way, in way you have botched the, um, the way in which uh, the last week in the response to coronavirus, the videos that you've come out, the tweets that you come out, you come out and you, 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 you tell your negotiators, we're not gonna negotiate a, co a coronavirus relief package. You've just handed a gift to Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats. And then you, then you go on the next tweet and you say to Mitch McConnell, your only priority right now is to get my Supreme Court nominee uh, confirmed. Don't worry about coronavirus relief until after the election. I mean, you're, you're giving these issues over to the other side here and it calls into question uh, the president's political judgment. Well, and we, we got to switch over to the VP debate. Uh, they also pulled uh, ads down. They don't have enough money yeah. or they're, they're seeing yeah. the same polling that, you know what, we're pulling ads from places like Ohio. So yeah, it may, maybe it's just uh, not 
not good politics. So I'll just leave it like that. Yeah. Uh, the vice presidential debate, uh, there was, I think, high expectations for Kamala Harris. I think that she fell short. But if you're Joe Biden's campaign, you're happy with it because guess what? Everybody's talking about a, a, a damn fly and uh, Kamala <laughs> didn't generate any headlines that I can see that uh, their campaign needs to be on the defense about. Your take on the VP debate, because that was one that I think we were watching knowing that, well, you know, they, they've got to do it, but it's probably not going to change a lot of opinions. And certainly when, when you wake up the next morning and everyone's talking about a bloodshot eye and a fly for that was on Mike Pence's head for two minutes, if that's the takeaway from the debates, there wasn't a lot there. That's good for Biden. Uh, you know, the vice presidential debate, this one's going to go down with such memorable debates as, okay, all other vice presidential debates. I mean, that, that you know, the, uh, I, thought, I thought that going into the debate that you had, it was going to be an interesting contrast. You had the prosecutor in Harris versus the radio talk show host in Pence, because Pence was a radio talk show host before he got back into politics um, in the 1990s. Uh, and and Pence is very fluid in the language or fluent in the language of uh, the conservative ecosphere. Uh, he's very good at talking points. He's very good at the soundbite. And I thought that starting out early on in the debate, that that Pence was was um, very strong. I mean, I might be a minority opinion, but I thought Pence in the first twenty minutes of the debate was doing very well. I thought that Harris was a little bit shaky, but boy, she hit her stride about 25, 30 minutes into the debate. And she she just went from there on and she delivered some real punches and and uh, and, and connected on a lot of them. I think that, that Pence was handed a bad hand. I mean, let's just look at this. Pence was handed an impossible task. He, he's, he's the head of the president's coronavirus task force and yet he's sitting behind plexiglass in the debate because the virus is out of control. The president is positive for coronavirus. On top of that, he has to answer the questions on the president's taxes. And he is also hamstrung by the president's antics. And and say what you want about Mike Pence, and he signed up for this, but Mike Pence is a movement evangelical conservative. And and Mike Pence um, is, is, you know well how uncomfortable he is with a lot of the antics of the president, his boss. Uh, and, and he's in there and he has a very methodical approach to debating. It's a slow, it's methodical approach. But the problem is, is that he is debating to an audience of one, which is the president. And that's the problem with this entire administration. It's what you saw at Walter Reed with these doctors. They don't want to offend the president. It's almost a preternatural uh, a tendency here with, with all of these administration officials, Pence included, not to say something that's going to offend the president. Make sure you touch on the lines that the president wants you to touch on. And, and it's almost, I mean, I don't mean to be flippant about this at all, but it's almost um, you know, subconsciously, it's, a, you know, I hope I made you proud, daddy. Please don't hit me. Uh, and, and that's the problem. I mean, he had to come out there and, and talk about the Russia investigation and that they were spying on the Trump campaign, because you know that if he hadn't touched on that, the president would be irate about that. Um, but I thought that, that Pence's strongest moments in the debate were, was when he was talking about the economy. I thought that that was his strongest moment. I thought that's where, where Harris was at her weakness. And any time the Trump campaign can talk about the economy, that's good for the Trump campaign because that is the one area 
where voters still give the edge to the president on. Um, but then when he, when one thing that Trump, Pence did, and I thought that this was a, a mistake from a tactical standpoint was he got a question on the economy, turned it on to taxes. And it was as though he just backed up the, dr the dump truck and just unloaded everything he had on Biden and Harris about the tax policy, about regulations. He didn't have a theme there. That, there was a possibility there that he could string that along and, and, and work that in uh, in multiple answers, and he didn't do that. There's a couple of the – the two things that I took away um, were – you and your, this feeds off of the fact that, all right, he's you know, debating for an audience of one. Well, the, the audience that this campaign needed to make inroads on were, were females, women. Mm -hmm. And again, dealt a bad hand, you know, but I don't feel you know, one bit of pity for Mike Pence at all. Uh, you're debating a, a woman who is, a, you know, a prosecutor, very, a, a strong woman that is, is liked. And you've got a, a, a female moderator and the, the approach, the tactical approach that you were just talking about with Mike Pence of interrupting of ignoring the rules, of speaking over, of it, it was a bad optics look. And what I saw and what I've heard from a lot of my female friends was, yep, every woman knows exactly <laughs> what that was like to have a guy talking over you and not listening to you. So it did nothing to help uh, uh, close any gap on the female base, which you say is, of course, at unprecedented levels. So there is very little room that he probably could have gained, but I don't think they did themselves any favors. No, on, the on the flip side, though, there are a couple of things that I, for the life of me, cannot understand that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris cannot have been prepared to answer. One is <laughs> the, the packing of the Supreme Court. I mean, Joe Biden earlier today goes, well, you'll know my position on that after the election. Well, what the shit, man? People yeah. are, are, are talking about this right now because you have Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, laid to rest and you've got a nominee right now. People are asking that question. It's top of mind. But they cannot, for whatever reason, do the simple approach of, of re, uh, doing the rebuttal when, when Mike Pence is saying they want to raise your taxes on day one. Here's a simple answer. No, I don't want to raise your taxes. You watch me. I want to make sure that Donald Trump pays more than $750. There you go. That's all yep. you have to say. And there they you keep go. fumbling this. And the other, the other issue on the Supreme Court, I mean, that was glaring. I mean, two, two answers that were non-answers. Uh, the one was on the peaceful transfer of power. Pence would not commit to that at all at the end of the debate. And that was glaring. And Pence did not answer any question. He is a great, uh, he's a master at deflection. Um, but, but Harris, it was so noticeable. Uh, it, I mean, it was it was it was glaring that she just would not answer about expanding the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and 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 when Biden said that yesterday, I thought, well, there's the gaffe right there. Uh, it gives a little bit of oxygen, and and where it plays in, I think, which the Democrats are going to have to flush out an answer on this, is in these Senate races where you're going to get these Senate candidates on the record here, as opposed to expanding the Supreme Court. The simple answer is to come back and say, you know, let's talk about packing the Supreme Court. The, 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 you run the numbers of how many ju judges that President Trump has put on, because this has been the priority of Mitch McConnell to pack the court system. The point that the Republicans are viewing the judiciary now as an ally in order to try to um, influence the outcome of the election in contesting the counting of ballots. You want to talk about packing the Supreme Court, they're pushing through a Supreme Court nominee right now, less than, you know, the hearings start on Monday, the 12th, you know, 22 days before an election, when a majority of Americans, a majority of Republicans say, we should wait. Yeah. You know, that, that's the answer. 
That's the answer right there. And, and to come right out and say why, you know, my theory on it is, is that Biden is reluctant to, to expand the Supreme Court, which we've talked about in the past is perfectly constitutional. But, you know, he can come right out and say, you know, that's not a decision for me to make. That's a decision for Congress to make. Yeah. That's a decision for Congress to make. And, and nobody wants to. What we should all do is be respectful of the process and act like we have in the past. And that is let the American people decide who the next president is before we put somebody on the Supreme Court. It's not rocket science. No. No, so there was those two, and I thought of one more. I, and this is a wedge issue that I think the administration or the, the re-election campaign has been pretty successful at getting people, at least in North Dakota, to talk about Pennsylvania is another one. Is this, this, Oh, yeah, the Green New Deal. They yeah. said, well, Joe Biden has said he doesn't support this. Well, you guys, it's still on your campaign site. This is one of those moments like, okay, get your shit together and yeah. have a concise uh, you know, plan package out there for – uh, for this, because I think uh, you could, Mike Pence kept going back to it. Uh, the president was sprinkled in amongst a bunch of other things that are being thrown out to, on Twitter. Uh, it's something that I don't know if it's going to move enough needles between now and, and election day. And, and quite frankly, I mean, people are already voting, but it's, there's, those are the three areas of which this uh, Democratic candidacy is just fumbling over themselves. In, in, in Biden, Biden has to have an answer on the Supreme Court. He, he has to have an answer uh, when he goes to the town hall meeting next week on ABC. It's probably going to be one of the very first questions. And what ends up happening is, is that it's, it's very possible that this can become Hillary's emails all over again for the Biden campaign. You do not want to be talking about this in the final weeks of the campaign. So get your shit together, get an answer out there and, and move on. It's as simple. It's as simple as that. Yep. Uh, and on the fracking, on the fracking issue, you're absolutely right that the Republicans are very, very effective in using that as a wedge issue. Which goes back to my earlier point that I just think the president's not good at politics, because the president makes this is a referendum election, and the president makes everything about him. When you're sitting there as unpopular as Donald Trump is with approval ratings that are sitting in the low 40s and you're polling as an incumbent president and you're hitting 43, 44% national polls and in battleground states, you've got to change the narrative here. And that means that you have to stop talking about yourself and start focusing on your opponent. And Trump is incapable of doing that. You mentioned some of those battleground states. There's a battle for the Senate as well. Do you like that transition? <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> Working on it. Uh, uh, the Senate, uh, we got a number of races. Oh, my God. North Carolina, the scandal. That was a sex scandal, at least one in, in every election. This one being the Democrat sexting with some uh, – uh, strategist I, I i don't recall what she is but so now you're thinking okay north carolina looked like a lock and i don't know do scandals even matter in american politics anymore we just got done talking about the president we knew of all the scandals before election day in 2016 he still is our president right now uh but it, that that has people thinking well you know maybe north carolina is back in play maybe tillis survives so then if you're a democrat if you're schumer or whoever else you're looking well where else can we make gains without doing any losses. Uh, I mean, Alabama's probably a done deal. Uh, but you think about Colorado, you think Iowa's in play. What's the state of the, the races when it comes to the U.S. Senate majority? Democrats, um, Republicans have 53 seats right now. Democrats have 47. They're going to lose Alabama um, unless, unless if something, you know, 
uh, out of this world happens that changes the dynamic down there. Well, so the that, way this year is going. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you move the Democrats down to 46 seats, which means they need to get four seats to get to 50 and hopes that uh, Kamala Harris is going to be the vice president to break the tie in the Senate. And right now things are looking really good for the Democrats in Arizona and Colorado and Maine. So that's three. They were banking on North Carolina or hoping for North Carolina. And up until this uh, scandal happened, uh, the Democrat candidate Cal Cunningham was um, anywhere between, um, you know, four points all the way up to about nine points in the lead over Tom Tillis, who is a very weak incumbent running for reelection. And this, this shakes everything up. So if you take North Carolina as now an iffy proposition, and you're Chuck Schumer and the Democrats, you're saying, okay, we've got to pick up um, one more seat somewhere to get to 50. And ideally, we want some cushion here. Where do you go? Well, Iowa, where Teresa Greenfield is locked in a dead heat with, with Joni Ernst mm-hmm. in a state that Donald Trump did very well in in 2016, but is struggling in right now. Montana with Steve Bullock versus incumbent Steve Daines. Uh, Bullock right now is in recent polls down by a few points. Um, Kansas, which hasn't had a Democratic senator in 88 years. Mississippi, uh, it hasn't had a Democratic senator since the 1980s. Uh, Georgia, maybe. You've got two Senate races down there because one of them is a special election. Or, or Alaska, um, which, uh, you know, which has had Democratic senators as recently as the earlier part of this century. But all of the, the point here is that all of those races are on terrain that's not favorable to the Democrats. So the Democrats have no room for error and they have to run basically an inside straight to get control of the Senate here. And what the Democrats need is in in election after election now for the better part of the last 20 years, Heidi Heitkamp was the notable exception in 2012, is that the winner of the presidential race in a state corresponds perfectly with the almost perfectly with the winner in the Senate races. There's a correlation there. There's there's very, there's limited split ticket voting uh, right now. Um, and, and so if, if Biden can win North Carolina, theoretically, that should help him uh, help Cal Cunningham. But Biden's not going to win Mississippi. Uh, Biden may win Georgia. That's an iffy proposition. That's a toss up state. But he's not going to win Kansas. Uh, he's most likely not going to win Montana. He's not going to he's certainly not going to win Montana. He's not going to win Alaska. So what what the Democrats need is they need a, a Biden landslide, which is a possibility here. They need to have a tsunami here where Biden is winning by such a margin that the, the voters go in there and bring with them Democratic Senate candidates. Um, and, and that, you know, that's not something that I think the Democrats um, can, can uh, sleep on by any means. It's just, it's and by the way, if, 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 if Biden gets elected president mm-hmm. and, he, and the Democrats fall short in the Senate, there's no chance for a Biden presidency. Yeah, I mean, if Mitch McConnell is a majority leader, it's done. Biden's not going to get anything done. No, it will be right where we are, where uh, mm-hmm. being a United States senator as a Republican, the easiest job in America. Uh, the, the, and there, and I, I want to highlight this. There were so many missed opportunities by Democrats in Senate recruitment. Take, exa- take Texas, for example. Yeah. Beto. Beto or, or Beto. Julian Castro. Georgia was Stacey Abrams uh, right out of the gate there. Uh, ironically, the candidate that, that very few people thought beginning had much of a chance and is running arguably um, 
one of the best ran Senate campaigns in the country is Jamie Harrison down in South Carolina mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham, which he has Graham on the run there. The question is, can a Democrat in South Carolina get beyond 48% in the polls? And I think that's, a, that's an iffy proposition. The Democrats right now, 24 days out, look like they're going to have a good night on election night. But in so many of these Senate battles, it, they're just going to come just short, just short of getting, getting those Senate seats. Yeah, and this might be a, a once in a, a decade, two decade situation for them mm-hmm. in some of these yeah. states. Uh, we're wrapping up here, but there was something that was revealed uh, at the end of this week uh, in regards to to Michigan. The the governor there, uh, the, the FBI comes out to arrest, I think, thirteen uh, individuals. Uh, there was a plot to kidnap the Michigan governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, and to uh, to you know go. Uh, go to the Capitol, 200 men strong. Uh, this is some of the stuff that, you know, we've talked, uh, you know, every week about some of the, the troubling things that you're seeing out there, some of the warnings from intelligence to, from the FBI, and now mm-hmm. they foiled the plot. Thankfully, they foiled the, the, the plot, and the FBI is still on the ground doing work. Uh, this is a very scary situation, Jason. Yeah, and it, you know they keep saying, well, it was a group of of white white men, uh, militia members. It's a terrorist group, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. We're talking about kidnapping the uh, duly elected head of a state government uh, and trying to spark a civil war. Uh, and this comes um, a little more than a week after the president in the presidential debate tells the Proud Boys um, to stand back and stand by, and and it completely jives with the threat assessments by the FBI that are saying that white nationalists and supremacist groups are a currently a clear and present danger to national security in the, in, in the United States and domestic harmony. Um, this is, this is as serious as it gets. Uh, fortunately, the FBI was able to stop this in time from happening, but it calls into question what's going to happen in the weeks following the election and in between the election and the inauguration. Uh, where, by all accounts, democracy is going to be in a very precarious position, particularly if it is a uh, contested uh, and controversial election outcome for the presidency. Well, and and some of the hopes that, all right, uh, some of the, the Republicans in the Senate will at least grow backbone and do what's right. Well, you know what? You kind of get some trembles when you look at someone like Mike Lee from Utah in yeah. his tweet earlier this week saying, well, democracy is not really the goal here. And I'm paraphrasing, but when you see a sitting United States senator uh, tweeting that out, it kind of makes you wonder, all right, well, if, if it comes down to uh, a situation which, all right, you know what, it's country over party or whatever it may be, that kind of makes you pause when you watch mm-hmm. that. And then you, then you, that was jaw-dropping. I mean, that was jaw-dropping to have a sitting United States senator and, and a, a, a leader in the conservative movement, no less come out and say that. A book that I, I recommend is The Twilight of Democracy by Ann Applebaum, who is a, who is a conservative herself, um, writing about what's happening with democracies around the world, particularly on the right, what's happening with, uh, you know, in the conservative circles. Um, what, what, Lee, what Lee said out loud was what has been talked about privately for years now, and that is the demographic changes that are taking place in the country which are coming to a head now in the 2020s, is in what we talked about just a moment ago with the Senate. The Senate of the United States demographically is bad for the Democrats. 
um, because of the demographic changes are happening in parts of the country um, in, in clusters, not overall across the rest of the country. And so the Senate of the United States can lock in minority view, minority rule. If you take a look at the popular vote for the Senate, which is not how we elect senators, but nonetheless, a majority of Americans have consistently voted for Democratic Senate candidates because those Democratic Senate candidates, of course, come from the larger states. But if you look at the popular vote for president, uh, in 2004 was the only time that the Republican nominee for president won the popular vote since 1988. Mm -hmm. They consistently lose the popular vote. And, and what you see in this rush to put Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court is to lock in your gains, your conservative gains on the court, and to use the courts as a vehicle to advance um, you know, the agenda, whatever that, you know, that conservative agenda. And, and what ends up happening is you cannot have in a functioning democracy for too long minority rule until the dam breaks. And what Mike Lee is, is saying in there is that the Senate and, and the courts are going to basically be the guardrails against what he called rank democracy. Well, guess what? We are a republic, Senator Lee. We're also a democratic republic. We have fought and died and bled for suffrage in this country to expand the right to vote. That's how we choose our leaders, Senator Lee. And this is, I think, the, you know, I'm, I'm glad he came out and said it. Because for those of us that study politics, we've seen this happening for a long time now. Now it's out there in the open. And that's going to be the battle over the next 10 years in American politics is the undemocratic nature of the Senate, the undemocratic nature of the court system. And, and this, is, this is what we saw at various times back in the 1930s, what we saw back in the 18, 1880s and 1890s. That's what we're going to see now in the 2020s. Good way to end this week as far as a recap. Uh, don't hold your breath until we join you again next week because holy shit, <laughs> it's been a bumpy ride. Uh, this week of chaos is not planning on slowing down, I suspect, no. for the next, uh, uh, and I don't even want to say 24 days because, I mean, we're going all the way through January 20th is where. <laughs> I mean, this this situation in Michigan is very troubling, yeah. and that's putting it mildly. But Jason, as always, man, always fun to catch up on a Friday morning. You take great. care. And I've got a, I've got a text message here from the folks at Regeneron. I hope to have some news next week where we can get a sponsorship yeah. deal with them. Go look at that ad from the Lincoln Project. It is gold, Jerry, gold. Jason, take care. We'll chat again soon. You too. Thanks, buddy. All right, for all of you listening, you take care as well. Stay safe, and we'll see you again next week. <laughs>